Good morning. I see faces. This is good. We've come a long way in a year when I couldn't even get a cry or any noise in this auditorium being in here all by myself. So a lot of things have changed, and it's good to see everybody with us this morning. Isn't this nice? Free, free. It's good. Good to see you. Uh, I bring greetings from the family of Christ in Ellisville, Missouri, which is just outside of St. Louis. I had the privilege to uh, spend some time with that family in Christ this past week. Uh, Just a delightful place and filled with uh, a lot of hearts that love the Lord and a very powerful evangelistic spirit. Uh, It was so encouraging to go and meet people and somebody said, I'm a new Christian and -and so-and-so taught me, so-and-so taught me, and somebody was inviting and somebody was inviting. And so it it was a very powerful week uh, to be moved by a lot of people. So if you're ever in the St. Louis area, uh, I know a place that you would thoroughly enjoy uh, worshiping uh, with the saints. So just a fun, fun place to be. A few weeks ago, in fact, it's been a almost over a month ago, we started a series on following Jesus. And we followed our Lord to the Jordan River, and then we followed him from his baptism into the wilderness and the temptation, and then we followed him to the mountain. And what we did when we got to the mountain is we started listening to our Lord speak to us in that powerful sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. So I hope you have the Heavenly Library with you. Let's go back to the mountain, and let's go back to our Lord's Sermon, and let's pick it up where we left off. i tell you, one of the things that would have just been a joy to participate in would have been the opportunity to sit on the mountain and listen to this sermon. Can you imagine sitting there listening to Jesus himself? share his will and his desire, to hear the Lord look you and speak to you, look to you and speak to you and share with you how to love him and to fill you with his wonderful spirit. Wouldn't it have been great to have been there? Well, what's interesting and what we find when we go to Scripture is that we can hear every single word whenever we want, as much as we want. Because Matthew made sure that he recorded every word for us. And what he records for us is something that is truly life-changing. Now, one thing you notice about Jesus, and you're certainly going to see it now when you get into really the heart of this sermon, is that our Lord was not here to please men. It was never his desire to go out and make man happy. Now, don't misunderstand our Lord. He had a very submissive spirit. He had a very humble spirit. And he would give himself as a servant to all men. But he didn't look to men as the standard of right and wrong. Even religious men. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to remind us of who our standard is. And it is the Lord. And although we're going to get into this sermon and our Lord's going to be speaking to us on how we relate to one another and how we relate to his word, I want you to be fascinated with every single instruction, every single command, every single directive is actually taking us back to the heart of our Father. And what he's actually doing is he's showing us how God can live in us, and even more importantly, he's reminding us how the Father lived in him. He would make this point to his disciples. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, 
To hear that come from the mouth of Jesus, we go, well, yes, that doesn't offend me at all. That's not arrogant. That's not in any way remotely cocky. I get it. He's Jesus. But I want you to challenge yourself with this question. Could you say the same? Not that you're claiming to be God. No. But could you actually have the thought or the mindset that maybe if somebody sees me, they can see God. When I was in St. Louis, all right, and this is one of the great joys of being a preacher is when you, when you go to a place, they, they, they want to do all they can to reach out to you. And what was interesting is, is I knew a lot of people there or they knew my family and they'd done a lot of calling with my kids and, and others going, what does your husband like to eat? What does he want? You know, what would we feed him? Da, 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 da. And it was amazing at every single meal, it was like, I was like, wow, this is, this, is a, this is my kind of dinner. That doesn't always happen when you go out of town and go to somebody's house. You know what I'm saying? I, I have had some unusual things placed before me, all right? One of the things my mentor and friend Frank Jamerson taught me, if you ever go to a new place, make sure you don't go too hungry, all right? And I, oh, I was like, what'd that mean? Well, we got to a lady's house, and let's just say it was something that you've never eaten before. And you need to be a little careful before you put too much on your plate. Well, it wasn't the case in, in St. Louis. I mean, they went all out. And what I always realize when I get in situations like that and you feel that kind of love is that God's hands, God's words, God's affection is shared with us through godly people. That the hand of somebody who loves the Lord and has an affection for the Lord, when they come and touch you, hug you, serve you, you're feeling the touch of your Father. And so when Jesus shares this sermon to us, he's speaking to us as the people of God who want the will of God to be lived out in us. And so what that means is he is actually calling us to a higher standard. I want to begin reading now in verse 17. And we're just going to read what is simply kind of the introduction to this powerful section of the sermon. Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I truly say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. One writer put it like this, this section of the Sermon on the Mount, quote, The authority of Scripture is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith because without it, we would be left to distinguish right from wrong by ourselves, unquote. You see, what Jesus is saying and what he's pointing out to us by taking us back to the authority of Scripture is he's saying man is not your standard. 
Because when man is going and establishing himself as the standard, then the standard's always going to be changing, blowing with the wind, blowing with the times, blowing with whatever is the element of the day. But God's standard is always going to be set and secure. And Jesus says, even I, even I, the king, and he's established himself as a king, and he's establishing a kingdom, even I as the king have not come to establish my own standard. I've come to fulfill the one that has already been put in place by the Father. You go back to the old law, and I know many of you, everybody here is probably a good student of the Bible, and you know your Old Testament, and you can look back in the Old Testament and all those customs, and our first inclination today is to say, well, that's all been done away with. Jesus wouldn't say it like that. Jesus would say, it's all been fulfilled. Even the sacrificial part of the covenant. You go over to Hebrews chapter 10 and really verses or chapters 8 through 10. Hebrew writer speaks to us about how the blood of bulls and goats has been made obsolete. Well, that's true, but here's the deal. The sacrificial system hasn't changed, but the sacrifice has. And Jesus became the more perfect sacrifice. He became the sacrifice that was way above, far greater, far better than any bull or goat or animal. He became what was perfect. He came to fulfill that system. And notice how Jesus says it here in, in, in verse, uh, uh, verse 18. He says, I tell you, this is how serious I am about fulfilling the law of God. Every jot and tittle shall be fulfilled. Now, I have the English Standard Version. My, my Bible says iota or dot. Here's what that means. Let's talk about a jot or, as the English Standard says, iota. If you were to go and go through your Hebrew alphabet, all right, we would say A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You know our alphabet. You would get to the 10th letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and you would find what is called a jot. It is merely just almost like a little comma. We would almost describe it, a little dot. If you go to Psalms 119, Psalms 119, you remember that big, long psalm right in the middle of your Bible? What makes that psalm so powerful is not that it's just every verse is about the Word of God, but each little section of that entire psalm is dedicated to a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So if you were to read it in the Hebrew Every little section would begin with every verse beginning with that letter. In fact, many of your Bibles will have that noted. So you go to the jot, and you'll find that every, every word begins with that letter. Jesus is saying, you know that little itsy-bitsy letter? I make sure that every little jot is followed. Our translation in English is iota. So he says, I don't, I don't give an iota. That's where that comes from. I don't even give a little bit. That's what that means. Jesus says, I give a little bit. <laughs> an iota means a lot. A tittle, a tittle would actually just be a part of a letter. For example, what do we do with an I? You what the I? You dot the I. You Ohio Buckeye fans, I should have given you that one. That was your moment to dot the I, all right? Tim gets it. Put a tube out there. I digress, but a dot. In the Hebrew, it would be a letter that has a little slant 
Gospels mark on the end. Jesus is simply saying, I'm so serious about keeping the law. Every jot, every iota, every tittle, every dot is important to me. And then notice what he says. Don't do what others are doing by relaxing part of the law. Well, relaxing would simply be annul or dissolve. It's actually the same word used by John the Baptist when he said to Jesus, he who comes to me, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals, untie, loosen, to take what is bound and let it out just a little bit. The point that Jesus is making, don't do that at all. And then the third point that he makes is this, verse 20, and this would have been astonishing to the crowd that day, your righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. Now for them, this was mind-boggling because they saw the guys, the scribes, who spent all day just simply transcribing the law, studying the law. They were the lawyers of the law, the Pharisees who put so much effort into keeping every bit of the law. In fact, when they had a garden, when they had a garden, they would make sure that every single herb, no matter how tiny it was, it was put on the scale so they could make sure they gave a tenth of that to the Lord. They were that that serious about certain ceremonial laws. But Jesus knew Jesus knew that in their heart and in the way that they held the law was not even close to God's standards, but on the outside, men thought they were great. Jesus goes, I'm not here to please them, and you shouldn't be here to please them because it's their righteousness that you're not trying to follow. You need a higher standard than any man. Righteousness. Notice in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds. The word righteousness, actually, we can define it real easy from man's point of view, and it's a good definition. It's the quality or state of being morally correct or justifiable. In other words, it's to say, I was right. I was right. It can be considered synonymous with rightness or being upright. Now, what's the deal with man's righteousness? Well, it can shift. It can change. And just look at society today and look at how it's changing, okay? Jesus is saying his definition is not about what's right in man's eyes, even the person that you think is the most holy. Righteousness is the quality of being right in the eyes of God, including his character or his nature, his conscience or his attitude, his conduct, his action, or his command and his word. What Jesus is doing is he's saying, what makes my kingdom so different is that my kingdom is established on what is pleasing to God. 
You know, when Jesus was establishing his kingdom, there were so many things that he didn't talk about that people wanted him to talk about. And I guarantee if he was here today, we would have the same frustration with him. Lord, what's your position on taxes? Lord, what's your position on immigration, health care, education? Lord, what's your position on this issue, this political issue, this challenge in society? What's your issue? How are you going to help us resolve this? Lord, what's the position? What is right? Jesus says, I'm going much further than that. I'm going to what should be right in your heart. I'm trying to implant my father's will, his attitude, his conduct, his action within your heart. And that's how my kingdom goes across all nations, all barriers, is not bound to a map. My kingdom goes so far and so deep it goes into the heart of my people. And so when he's sharing with us this powerful sermon, hear what he's saying. I want the heart of the Father in you. And so when the heart of the Father is in you, understand there is a standard and you don't let up on it. You don't relax it, even a jot and a tittle. You don't let it up, even the remotest. And you recognize that who you are, what you are, exceeds. Exceeds even those that you consider to be the most righteous on the earth. Now, there can be a part of us that goes, oh, oh, why don't you just throw a big load on me, Lord? Good night. Well, you're going to see the Lord certainly understands grace and mercy. but his people understand the standard. And Jesus, again, reminds us, I didn't come to abolish. I came to fulfill. So that somebody can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. All right, now beginning in verse 21 through the end of the chapter, he gives us six examples. He gives us six examples of where he shows us these characteristics or these points in each and every one of these examples. Let me put it that way. And so what you find from verse 21 to 28, he's going to deal, or 26, he's going to deal with our relationship with others. And then he's going to deal with another one in 27 to 30. So you're going to see all that for time's sake. I'm not going to sit here and read all of them out to you, all right? I'm not going to sit here and read it all out to you, but what I want you to see as we go through each and every one of these, there is a standard our Lord is putting before us, there's a warning, do not relax it, and there is a practice that is lived out in the heart of kingdom people. Let's begin with the first. In verse 21, and this is how he begins each and every one of these, you have heard that it was said. In other words, there is a standard in the world. You have heard even taught by the religious. You have heard that it was said of all you shall not murder. And whoever murders is liable to judge. But I say to you, now notice what Jesus is doing here. You've heard of a standard. You've heard of a standard. But I say to you, a higher standard. But this standard should have never been this low in the first place in man's eyes. 
Jesus said it should have been up here. Notice how he says this. He says, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. And everyone who insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to hellfire. Now, you've probably have heard this many times before, but I want you to see what Jesus says is the standard. This actually, you shall not murder, comes from another, another list of rules that is probably very familiar in your mind. Anybody know? Where does that come from? I'll give you a hint. There's 10 of them. 10 commandments, right? That's in the 10 commandments. You shall not murder. Well, Jesus said God wasn't saying to us, all right, here's the deal, folks. Don't murder, but hate the guts of anybody you want. You're good. No. That's not what God intended by that. As long as you don't murder, you're okay. I mean, every day we can go to bed and go, well, I'm such a good person. I didn't kill one person today. I did good. There were some people I wanted to kill, but I held off. Isn't the Lord proud of me? No. That wasn't why the Lord made that command. Obviously, murder is wrong. But think of it as a pyramid that you're only seeing the top of it, or an iceberg, you're only seeing the top of it. At the foundation of it is how you feel and think about your brother. That's why Jesus says a little later in the text, don't even say to your brother, Raka, which would simply be equivalent. Don't even call your brother a nitwit. Don't even say that your brother's unintelligent. Don't offend him by even calling him a fool or an idiot. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? I mean... We may never kill somebody, but when we get home, we can slam with our words. We may never physically strike somebody, but when we're off in front of somebody else that we feel comfortable with who maybe shares our same opinion, we will mutilate somebody else. Well, Jesus isn't saying that murder and speaking evil are equivalent in consequences. But what he is saying, if you say this, as long as I don't murder, but I can say with my mouth is righteous, you have missed it. In fact, Jesus is going to go on to give us a very powerful example. You don't even come to the house of the Lord with your gift to the altar until you've sought every way possible to resolve an issue with somebody else. Anybody here been aggravated with someone recently? No pointing. Bet you have, haven't you? Anybody kind of got off on your own? Maybe you got back in the car and you're like, boy, if I could be. You ever had that? Yeah. It's part of life. Remember, I told you that. You should see the Lord in every single one of these. How many times has the Lord looked at us with what we've done, what we've said, and gone, Phil's an idiot, and he'd have been dead on right. Isn't it amazing that he's tried his best to resolve the differences between us? The second one, 
not just in your relationship with others. Now he goes in your relationship with yourself. And in verses 27 to 30, he talks about righteousness within yourself. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Where have we gone back to? Ten commandments, right? You don't do that. But Jesus says, even if you look upon a woman and lust for her, you've committed adultery in your heart. Uh, Here was the relaxation that was happening in that day and age. It was okay. It was okay to have lustful thoughts. The rabbis would actually say, that's all right. Yeah, that's going to happen. Ah, you're a man. That's what you do. Ah, no. Jesus says, no. No. That's not what you do. That's not who you are. Your righteousness must exceed even those that are around you. Uh, In fact, here's what the law said. If you go back and look at Psalms, Psalm 66, verse 18, the psalmist says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. That's Psalm 66, 18. Notice, even in the law itself, I shouldn't regard iniquity in my heart. Go back and look at some of the great adultery stories in the Old Testament. Potiphar saw Joseph and lusted for him is the implication. David saw Bathsheba bathing and lusted for her. And then you look at even Samson himself. He saw the woman of Timnah and determined who and what she was by simply her sight and what he saw in her. It was the eyes. It was the eyes from Potiphar's wife onto David and and into Samson. There is a warning there to us. Jesus is going to get very serious in verses 29 to 30 and he's going to say here's how your righteousness should exceed that of the world it sounds hyperbole but is it if your eye causes you to stumble pluck it out oh, surely the Lord's just exaggerating I personally think he is but I also think if that's what you've got to do You do it. If your hand's prone to reach for things it shouldn't, chop it off. What's his point? Crave righteousness and run from any form of ungodliness. What you see, what you think, what's in your heart, Then in verses 31 to 32, he talks about marriage, all right? Apparently in that day and age, it was very common, just like our day and age, to divorce for any reason. But they did it on the grounds of Scripture. You've heard that it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him get a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except for grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is simply saying, there is a standard And if you want to go back and lean on the law of Moses where Moses gave you a certificate of divorce, that wasn't because your heart was right. That was because your heart was evil. And the Lord allowed it just because your heart was evil. And in this day and age, here's what was happening and being taught by the scribes and the Pharisees is, if you're just unsatisfied with your wife, you can get rid of her. Oh, by the way, by the way, it was a male-dominated society, ladies. And so they had a custom that if your wife just didn't please you, you could take her back to her dad. You just had to give back the dowry. That's what you had to do. But Jesus says that's not 
That's not the attitude of my father. In fact, he restricts covenant breaking to the sin in the Old Testament that was punishable by death. Adultery. And he tells us in Scripture, reminds us through the words of Solomon in Proverbs 5 as well as Ecclesiastes 9, live joyfully with the wife of your, your youth all the days of your life. Isn't it wonderful to know that we have a father who keeps his covenant relationship with us? Your words, verses 33 to 37. Again, you've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not... But there's another... Back to the Ten Commandments. Don't bear false witness. But Jesus says, I say to you, you don't even need to give an oath. What's interesting, what's interesting, the idea of giving an oath or swearing on heaven or Jerusalem or whatever, the throne of God... You actually find, you actually find when you go back to Numbers 30, verse 2, if you swear an oath by the name of the Lord, you shall not break it. But those words were not saying that only when you swear an oath by the name of the Lord, that's the one you keep. If you don't swear by the name of the Lord, you're okay to break it. That was not his point at all. In fact, as kingdom citizens, as people who want the Lord to live in their heart, our word, our word is all somebody should need to know we're going to do what we said we'll do. We have contracts and covenants in our society today, and it's certainly all right to sign them. Part of our custom, part of the laws of the land. But it shouldn't be needed among God's people. I tell you I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. I tell you I'm going to be involved, I'm going to be involved. If I tell you I'm going to love and serve, I'm going to love and serve. Jesus says a higher standard, period. And then I especially want you to notice this section. This is 38 to 42. You've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You know what? That's actually in the law. It meant if Somebody harmed you in this way, you could only retaliate to the same level. You couldn't go above it. They took out a tooth, you can't take out all his teeth. <laughs> That's what you do. But it wasn't there so you would desire and long and want retaliation. If the foundation it was to understand that I live with a higher calling than the rest of the world. You know what this last year has taught us? I believe it's really taught us how well we understand the law of our Lord regarding mercy and retaliation. This is what society says. I have my rights. Do unto others before they do unto you. Shoot first, ask questions later. I don't get mad, I get even. That's what our society says. That's righteousness. 
Jesus says, no. In fact, in Proverbs 20, verse 22, the wise teacher says, do not say, I will pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord and he will avenge you. Jesus will go on to say as he describes this to the crowd that is listening to him, someone slaps you on the cheek, give him the other cheek. If someone takes your jacket, give him your shirt. If someone forces you to go with him one mile, which was very common in that day by a Roman soldier to make somebody carry their pack for him, if somebody forces you to go one mile, you go with them too. Why is that? Because that's exactly what your father does for you. Because that's exactly how the heart of our father responds to us. And then last, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Can you imagine can you imagine if I got up here one day? All right, everybody, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. It's in the word. Let's go. You know, whoa, what kind of church is this? This is great. Well, in that day and age, they misunderstood God's word and how you relate to others. And that was actually being taught. But Jesus will say, uh uh-uh. uh, love your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you. Notice verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Do you see what he's been doing with all this? He's just been giving us powerful examples how we can show the world that the God that we love, the God that we serve, the God that we long to be with for eternity actually lives within us. Don't even the tax collectors and the Gentiles and the people of the world love those who love them? I mean, isn't that the way it works? I mean, even in our society around us today, you'll see fundraisers and you'll see good things being done for people of the community, which I applaud to great end, but it's the idea of loving those who love you, doing good to those who love you. That's great. Absolutely do that. But even the world has that kind of attitude for those they love or those they care for or those they want to serve. You love those who don't love you. And notice verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You see how he took us back to the standard? You go from verse 48 to verse 20 and you see the bookends. Your righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees because you long to be like your father, not like men. And Jesus says, this is how God lives in you. I would have loved to have walked with Jesus. We come in here on Sunday and we shake each other's hand. Can you imagine walking up to Jesus and shaking? I, I couldn't shake. I'd have to hug. 
Wouldn't it have been great to do something for him or him do something for you? Yes, God himself. Well, I want you to hear what Jesus is saying to us. I touch you through the hands of my people. I serve you through those who serve me. And so his people, his people purify their hearts. They don't hate. They purify their hearts. They don't want to lust. They keep their commitments. They honor their oaths. They go an extra mile. And they love those who don't love them. That's because the Father lives in them. It's a higher standard. It's a higher standard. It's not to scare us. It's not to make us quake that it's way too high. Remember, your Father is a God of mercy, a God of grace. He understands our imperfections, but there is a standard there nonetheless, and that's what we strive to do because we follow Jesus. And Lord willing, Lord willing, every single one of us that love the Lord can one day say, You've seen me. I hope you've seen the Father. That you've heard it in my words. You've felt it in my touch. You've seen it in my compassion. You've seen it in my submission. I tell you, I'm really moved when I think about what Jesus is saying because if you go back in chapter 5 and in verse 6 and you go back to the Beatitudes, remember this one? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. It's not just hungering and thirsting for the word of God. It's hungering and thirsting to fulfill the word of God in our lives. And Jesus says, this is exactly how you do it. And there's no greater fulfillment in purpose-filled life than a life that longs to share God with the world. And so we remember the standard. We don't relax it. And our righteousness exceeds that of men. We want to be like our Father. That's what he's saying. You could certainly apply this to other things. You could apply it to the principle of baptism, couldn't you? Don't relax it. Don't relax it. The Lord said baptism is part of his salvation plan. Don't loosen it. Don't try to change it. Don't, don't, don't think that just because other men preach it that that's the standard. Look to what your father says. You could do that in so many, so many other principles in Scripture. But for now, I just want to leave us with this thought. Do I hold Scripture in this high regard? Do I see who the standard is, my father? And is that what I want to be. You know what's part of the gospel of grace is not just forgiving us, but it's God's patience to transform us. And it's his transforming power that he works through the word to turn us, 
mold us, shape us into his people. And if there's any way that we can help you do that today, in just a moment, your shepherds are gonna be coming to the front and we wanna be here to help you and to help you grow closer to God, to help us grow closer to one another, that we can be the people of God, that we can be his kingdom and that he can live in us. And if there's any way that we can help you do that today, whether it's through baptism and becoming a child of God or prayer or any ways that we can help you grow, please, please, please reach out to us. Let's be the people of God and live by a higher standard. If we can help you, won't you come while we stand and while we sing?